This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller, CEO of Empire State Properties and host of the Miller Report. I'm delighted to talk to this week's guest. I'm sure all my listeners know who this one is. He was raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He graduated from NYU and got his master's at Columbia. From 2014 to 2021, he was the mayor of New York City. Welcome, Bill de Blasio, to the Miller Report. Thank, Thank you, Bill. You. Thank you, Suzanne. It's a great pleasure to be with you. So, Bill, I've done a lot of research, and this is going to be tough because as I've researched this, I spend a lot of time before my guests Pretty much everything that's wrong with New York, people are blaming you for. So you. Well, that's convenient, we're, right? We're <laughs> One start. stop shopping. <laughs> One stop shopping. I'm reading and I'm like, oh, they're going to blame Bill for that. They're yeah. going to. So maybe you want to tell us a joke because I know that you ha- want to be. St- we could start with that and break the ice. Well, I'm only going to refer to a great quote from Ed Koch when he said, you know, what New Yorkers feel like is when a sparrow dies in Central Park, it's the mayor's fault. You know, it's like it's just it's something about New York that we all have come up with this idea of the mayor in the center of so many things. And that's not true in a lot of other places. But here it really is true. And that's part of what makes the job so amazing. But bluntly, it also can make it a pain in the butt, you know, (laughs) so you try your best. In fact, you can't control everything. But, um, you know, one of the things I've come to some peace with is people have a right to their opinion. They're going to feel what they feel. All you can do is do your best and try and level with people about what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. So before you started, like similar to a president, did you get any notes from the previous mayor? And did you leave any for Mayor Adams? Is that how it's done? Like you just walk in cold? I left a note for Mayor Adams. That's true. I did not get a note that I remember, at least from Mayor Bloomberg. I met with him once during the transition. Look, Suzanne, we're mature adults. You know, Bloomberg and I did not see eye to eye on many things. So although I thought he was a very intelligent and accomplished man, I agreed with him on some things. In general, that wasn't who I was going to for advice. But I did have the advantage of a lot of good people uh, who had been in public life in New York City a long time. For example, a guy you and I both know and love, John Katsimatidis. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people like John who have devoted their life to New York City in a variety of ways. They weren't necessarily mayor, but they have a lot to offer, a lot of great ideas. I had a lot of good friends like that to turn to. Can you tell us what the note said to Mayor Adams? I cannot. That's a private thing. Okay, well, uh, come on. Well, it's mainly to just focus sort of on what we're talking about. Focus on what you can do Mm -hmm. and uh, stay true to yourself. Because in the end, there's going to be all the pushes and pulls. It's almost 9 million people. It's the most diverse place on earth. You're not going to please everyone, right? but you have to try to keep focused on your own conscience and, you know, stay very, very focused on what you think is right. And, you know, look, the politics are the politics. You can only do so much to, again, make the political equation so perfect, right? It's in the end, you got to do what you think is right. And sometimes, and COVID's a great example of this, there are a lot of choices I made during COVID that I thought were the right thing to do. I knew they weren't going to be popular. At a certain point, you have to understand the people didn't hire you for a popularity contest. You know, they hired you to protect them. They hired you to watch out for their health and their well-being and to think about the future of the city and do things that would help the future of the city. So in a funny way, if you don't get too hung up about popularity, you're going to be a better mayor. So we'll get into COVID in a minute, but 
just in the eight years that you served the city, when you look back at it and you say, wow, you know, I really I did this, gave this eight years and I, I worked really hard. When you think about it, what would you say is your biggest accomplishments and what are some of the regrets? You know, the accomplishment I'm proudest of is pre-K for all. And, uh, and that turned into 3K also, which although it's not universal, you know, I still think it's gonna get there one day. So the notion that we're gonna look out for families, we're gonna look out for our youngest New Yorkers, we're gonna give them all the kind of start they deserve <coughs> equally, every child at the same starting line. Um, I found that to be greater even in its impact than I expected. And families told me that. They told me what it did for their kids. They told me what it did for their future. For a lot of moms, it meant they could go and work. Uh, it was money back in their pockets because they weren't paying a crazy amount for childcare. I'm very proud of that. You know, I've been very transparent about the fact that I wish I could get a do-over on homelessness because some of the strategies we developed later, I think, were starting to work. And then, of course, the pandemic uh, interfered with everything. But in the first couple of years, I don't think I understood, and this is on me, some of the things I had to do to address the situation. I'd actually been involved in the issue a long time. I was paying attention to part of it. I wasn't paying attention to another part of it. And later on, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, later on, I was like, oh, my God, this is what we could have done and should have done. Well, that, that's, that's honest, and that we appreciate that. But I, since 2014, I think that's when this started, you ran on a platform of having a liberal mindset, which we, we know so many New Yorkers agreed with, mm -hmm. and also about reforming the police. Yes. This is a very big issue. Mm -hmm. So if you were the mayor today, do you, would you still do that? Would you reform the police? Well, I'm going to use my own words because I think there's so many loaded terms out there mm -hmm. um, that have really made it harder to have. Careful, I didn't say defund no, the I police I because I, I, I spent a lot of time and I know that would be very insulting. Yeah. But, but the police, I am curious as to if you were the mayor today, would you put more police officers there? Would you put less? How would you reform it? What do you think? I'm going to be careful always not to get into the Monday morning quarterback kind of thing. There is a mayor, he's been serving for a couple of years. He, he's a friend, he's someone I respect. Um, he has more information on what's going on than I could ever hope to at this point. When you're mayor, you have a massive amount of information that you don't have when you're a civilian. So what I'd say is broader. For the first six years before the pandemic, we were driving down crime, we were driving down violence very consistently. I had great police commissioners, Bill Bratton, Jimmy O'Neill, Dermot Shea did an amazing job. We did reform in the sense of helping to bring police and community back together, helping to create more dialogue, more respect mutually, and it was working. The pandemic was the huge disruption. I think that approach, neighborhood policing in particular, that strategy, which Bill Bratton and Jimmy O'Neill really were the engineers of, I think that worked and should be continued and should be deepened. I also think we found something that we didn't expect, which is that neighborhood residents can be a crucial part of the solution, what's called the Cure Violence Movement, the Crisis Management System, it has different names, the violence interrupters, the community-based people who go out into their own neighborhoods and stop gang members from having conflicts, convince young people to move away from gangs. This is a very powerful strategy. I think there's a lot of hope for that. So I think there's a lot of reform that can be done. Defund that whole movement, I think, uh, made a huge mistake by using terminology and, and putting out ideas that didn't make sense to the vast majority of people of all backgrounds. But I think we can have an honest conversation about the fact that safety has to come first. We all care about our families and their safety, our neighborhoods, their safety. But we also need to do better at bringing police and community together. There's still a gap there. Well, what about the morale? What about the, the police officers that took retirement? And they, they, why would somebody want to be a police officer? If they do their job, they're going to 
be put in jail in some cases. Well, I don't think that reform means unfair standards. I think reform can be very fair and transparent. I'll give you a great example of the body cameras. When we introduced the body cameras, a lot of officers liked it because they said, well, you know, we're doing the right thing and this is going to prove we're doing the right thing. Uh, the training, Bill Bratton was adamant about this, retraining the entire police force on de-escalation. You know, that really helped. It led to fewer incidents that became flashpoints between police and community. It was better for the police. It was better for the community as well. So I think a lot of reform actually can make the police officer's job more um, rewarding, something they can feel better about and understand better how to do it the right way. Uh, but on top of that, what I heard from a lot of officers was they really appreciate when they are thanked by the public. Well, that directly connects to having a relationship. So one of the things we did with neighborhood policing was you had a, a large number of officers who stayed in the same community long term, met community residents, clergy, store owners, you know, uh, teachers and principals in schools. They got to know the community. They got to know parents. And they started to know each other on a first name basis. They started to share their cell number, their email with members of the community. That built a personal relationship, and that's where there was a ton of gratitude. And I heard that from the officers involved in that neighborhood policing program, that they were getting thank yous all the time. They felt connected to the people they served, rather than just show up for a horrible crime and then move on to another neighborhood. That was the essence of community policing, bringing the humanity and neighborhood policing, bringing the, neighbor, bringing the, the humanity back to the relationship. So you think it worked? What about I, stop and frisk? Well, hold on. I know it worked because for six years before the pandemic, Crime went down very, very tangibly. Violent crime went down, shootings went down, murders went down. We know it worked. We know that stop and frisk, actually, the way it was used in the Bloomberg administration, was exacerbating the tensions between police and community and wasn't achieving lower crime because when we got rid of it, we brought crime down. And I'll tell you, I met with Bill Bratton before I became mayor, and I, I remember this very vividly. I didn't know him well. And I said, I, you know, I, I feel like there's something profoundly wrong with stop and frisk, the way it's being used, overused. He said he agreed. He said, let me give you an analogy. He says, chemotherapy. Chemotherapy used very, very precisely can save a life. Chemotherapy overused can cause more harm than good. And I think that's what happened with stop and frisk. It, there's a very narrow way to use it that's constitutional appropriate, but the way it was being used, you know, 10 years ago was ridiculous. We, we greatly reduced the use of it and crime went down for six years. So, I mean, how much more proof do we need? And we could see deepening connection between police and community. And again, I think police officers deserve our thanks. And one of the best ways to help them get those thanks on a daily basis is to have those personal relationships at the community level. I respect your opinion, but I disagree. Please, I think the police, I think the police are the most important job and I think they should be given housing. I think they should be not stripped of their power. I think they should be um, validated when they arrest somebody that's a criminal. Let's move on to 2000. I agree with you, by the way. Oh, good. It should be validated when they arrest someone with a criminal 100%. Well, we have to define criminal. Let's move on to but, what but happened. But we agree. I, yes. I think we very much agree on that. So let's go on to what happened with this whole bail reform in 2019 yeah. that New York State stopped taking money bail for nonviolent criminals and misdemeanors. First of all, what is a nonviolent criminal? I've watched, I mean, the person on the subway with that person with the vet and also the tourist, the tourist that was in Grand Central just a few weeks ago that was stabbed. And the man that stabbed her had been arrested 17 times, 17 times. And he's not crazy. in jail. How do no, you define crazy. this? What, when you were mayor, yeah. what was your position on bail reform? And if you were the mayor today, how would you handle it? 
again, I'm going to be very careful about any of the, if you're the mayor today, because I want to respect that Mayor Adams is the person making decisions and has the information. But I'll tell you what happened in 2019. I don't like what happened in 2019. I think the state made a mistake. I've said it publicly. It's like uh, the idea that there had been horrible situations where people had done really minor offenses ended up in Rikers long-term because they couldn't afford bail. That was horrible. That was unjust. And the idea of having a bail reform itself to fix that kind of problem made sense. My police leaders felt the same way about that. Where we all thought the state made a huge mistake was to take away the ability of judges to exercise their own discretion as to whether someone should be held back because of either a history of violent incidents or a history of repeat offenses or the possibility, you know, based on actual facts that they might commit another offense. And obviously based on the severity of the offense they were accused of. The bail reform wasn't written right in 2019. There was improvement in the following years. It's still not, I think, everything it needs to be. But there was a moment in 2019 where the state legislature could have gotten it right. I think they would have done everyone a service, including themselves, if they had simply balanced those two facts. Reform for the folks who had done very minor offenses, nonviolent. There was no reason for someone to be in jail who couldn't afford bail. But on the other hand, if someone's violent, if someone's going to harm the community, if someone might pose a threat, of course they should be held in. As simple as that. So, Bill, I want to go back to your last comment, how we started this, that you said that you don't want to be upsetting the mayor and you don't want to act like, you know, you didn't say upsetting. Well, you know, we don't want to say, you don't want to be, you want to respect that. When you're out of office, you don't have the same information or perspective as someone who's running the city. But you're really, you have been a servant of our city for just eight years and you have a lot of experience. And I think the mayor who I've interviewed and I have tons of respect for, I think he's Mm -hmm. doing a great job with his hands being tied. And I think people want to hear from somebody that's been there eight years. If you, like, you have the keys, you know, you know what the politics are. So if, if you couldn't do it then, at least you could maybe give us some insight of what you would do now if you were the mayor. And some of these subjects that I'm going to ask, it's important that we hear from you. No, I appreciate that. And listen, uh, eight years as mayor and 12 years before that as a public servant, as city council and public advocate. So yeah, I have a lot of perspective for sure. And I have strong views. I am happy to offer my views, but I don't offer them from the perspective of, oh, the mayor should do this, the mayor should do that. You know, that's something I think at this moment in my life, I am not trying to be in the middle of all that stuff. You know, I respect how important it is, the decisions the mayor and the city council are making. Um, I don't follow the details day to day, and you have to if you really want to comment on them. I can offer what I learned for sure. And I learned some very powerful lessons. I learned some things that worked. I learned some things for sure that didn't work. But I will tell you, Suzanne, you know, as much as we're New Yorkers, everyone gets agitated, understandably, everyone's passionate, everyone has a strong opinion, that's what makes us New Yorkers. But I do think we should step back and take a look at where we are having just survived the biggest crisis in our history. Because, you know, a lesser city, a lesser people would have been laid low by COVID. This city fought back like it was nobody's business. It was unbelievable. And you go around the city today, yeah, there's still, we'd still like to get some more tourists back. We'd like to get some more business travel back, things like that. But overwhelmingly, this is a city that has fully recovered from COVID. Uh, people are still suffering from long COVID in some cases. Of course, there's still ramifications of COVID. That's not what I'm, I'm not trying to ignore that. I'm trying to say the life of the city, you go around the city, it's hustling, it's bustling again. 
it's amazing the comeback the people of the city made. And I always gave credit to New Yorkers for their strength and resilience, and people should be proud of that. And I think sometimes we get down and we worry about our problems, which is fair, but we should take a moment to appreciate our strengths and our achievements as New Yorkers. The city really is in bad shape right now, and I do appreciate that we've come a long way since COVID, but we're in, a, we're in, we're in the shit. I don't agree with that. Okay, we can get into that. But we let's can just, get let's into just that. Go way back. Let's go back to the um, COVID thing. Yeah. Playing Monday morning quarterback, if you were the mayor, again, just to, you know, come with me, follow me on this, would you still do, ma- do you regret the mask mandate and the school closures? Would you do that again? I don't regret um, the mask mandate. I think the confusion in the beginning was really troubling, and I understand why the scientists and the doctors didn't understand now, but it pisses me off because what we should have been doing bluntly was masks from the very beginning. Uh, especially those first months when COVID hit us so hard. Um, but what, based on the information we had, we finally got there. It was the right thing to do. Um, the school closure, look, at the point we closed, and I hated closing schools. And my kids went to public schools in New York City. I believe in our school system. Parents depend on it. I hated it. I waited to the last possible moment, hoping against hope there was a solution. The problem was we just couldn't keep them going because so many people were out. We didn't have enough staff. So many people got sick. And... Um, we closed them. I felt horrible about it, even if it was necessary. But what I realized within weeks was there was no way remote learning could possibly replace in-person education. And everything I already knew, so many kids depend on schools for, for nutrition, for physical health care, for mental health care, you name it. So the goal was get them open as soon as possible. And we did that in September and October of 2020 when a lot of school systems around the country wouldn't go near it. Now, we did it in a partial way. I wish we could have done it perfectly, fully. Um, We had to win the confidence of parents, teachers, staff, et cetera. It was halting, but we got there. And then for 2021, I said, we're going back full strength, no remote anymore. This is ridiculous. You know, damn the torpedoes. And it worked. So it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't perfect, but I'm proud in New York City compared to a lot of places in the country that shut down. I mean, you know, San Francisco, LA, all these places were shut for so much longer. Like, no, we came back at the first available moment and by and large it worked. And by the way, the schools at certain point, the schools became the safest place in New York City. We had so many health and safety measures. The kid was much better off in school than hanging around in their neighborhood. Let's move on to the business front. So, um, we see what happened with Amazon and New York is, I always say New York is, is basically tourists and corporations. We lost 75,000 jobs because Amazon did not come to Long Island City. If you were the mayor, what, what was your position at that during the time? Well, first of all, I, I respect you, but I disagree with tourists and corporations. I think there's a lot more. I mean, New York City is small businesses. I mean, we're, we're the small business capital of the Well, I mean, country. small businesses and corporations. A corporation could be small or large. Of course. Uh, the, the mom and pop store, the neighborhood store, the bodega, the diner, there's so many things that make New York City. Make New York City. And by the way, we have a lot fewer of the chains than most of this country. We have many more family-owned stores proportionally, and I think, and restaurants, bars, everything. That's the greatness in New York City. Um, Amazon, to me, two points. One, look at them now. They've you know, stepped back from a lot of the commitments they made to other places, and the world has changed. So who knows in the end what Amazon would have done uh, in terms of keeping their original vision. But here's what I know for sure. Um, we had a deal. And by the way, you know, 
even if Andrew Cuomo and I didn't always agree, on this one we agreed. We joined the city and state together 100%. We gave Amazon all the guarantees. They signed on the dotted line. They said, we're coming. We had the press conference, and then they pulled back. Why did they pull back? Because imagine this. There were New Yorkers who protested. Everything in New York City, someone protests. You know, it's, did the people at Amazon not, like, pay attention to how New York City is? Did they not read the papers? Did they not go and, like, hang out in New York City to see that, of course, it's a place where there's passionate, strong views? They could have easily weathered that storm and kept their commitment and come here, and we would have been fine. If I could do it all over again, I would have never participated in their competition. I would have said to them, uh, we're not competing with 100 other cities. We're in New York City. There's only one place like this on Earth. If you want to come here, let's sit down at the senior level. Let's hash it out. Let's make sure you know what you're getting into. Let's make sure you really want this. We'll work with you. Uh, let's come to a deal that will stick. I think the competition screwed us up. And again, I, I accepted it. I wish I hadn't, honestly. So you're, you're saying that you would go back and do, if you had to do it again, you would encourage them, you'd find a way to get them here. Well, yes, but I think I would hold their feet to the fire too and say, we're not participating in this dog and pony show because it was the nature of that competition that discouraged us in some ways from going out to the community and having the conversations that I now wish we had had. I think if we had gone into the community saying, hey, we're in negotiation with Amazon. We want to bring the community into discussion to understand the benefits. By the way, the polling at the time said the vast majority of working class and middle class Americans, excuse me, uh, New Yorkers wanted Amazon in New York City. The vast majority of working class New Yorkers wanted Amazon. The vast majority of black and Latino New Yorkers wanted Amazon. Uh, you were the mayor. But listen, Andrew was the governor. That should have happened. Yeah, but the problem, again, this is, this is where people have to recognize when a company is basically one guy, let's be clear. When one guy gets to make the decision, he happens to be one of the richest people on earth. And he was phobic about public opposition and dissent. I wish we had had that conversation up front, one-on-one, -on -one, no big national competition. Here, we will offer you a great package. Uh, this is where the most talent is. This is where the biggest market in the country is. This is where the connection to the rest of the world is. We offered all those ideas in the competition. I wish it had been one-on-one. -on -one. We're looking across the table. But New York City is New York City. You know, we believe this is a great deal. A lot of people aren't going to like it. You're going to hear from them. By the way, the majority's with you, governor's with you, mayor's with you, let's go. I wish we had said to them, can you stand the heat in the kitchen? Because in the end, what they wanted, now I came to realize this too late, they wanted a place where there was not going to be any dissent, any protest, big red carpet, all that. The government did that for them. But you can't tell 9 million New Yorkers you have to all agree on something. And that's where I think the fault line was. And I, in a million years, thought bluntly, uh, Bezos and the other folks there had enough spine that who would care if there's some protest? Not that you don't listen to it, but you go on with your life. They were overawed, in my opinion. Well, I wish I knew you then. I would have helped close the deal. I believe you would have been great. We would have sent you in, Suzanne. <laughs> I would have like, done it. I would have let like, Amazon go. I, I still use them. Suzanne, come to the table. Settle this. Definitely close that deal. I, as a matter of fact, you're a closer. Do, I'm a closer. We have Amazon as our client right now yeah. at Empire State Property. So that's, I mean, it's a big deal to get these corporations here and keep the city going. So talking about the city, 500,000 people have left New York City since spring of 2022, 500,000 people. And many of those were high taxpayers. So we're talking about businesses, we're talking about people leaving. 
Why do you think they left and how do we get them back? Well, I think the facts on the other side of the equation need to be looked at too, to answer your question properly. You know, we did the census in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. Amazing, um, really beautiful effort by people against all odds to go out and actually count how many New Yorkers there was because that determined federal funding and lots of other things. We end up with a number of 8.8 million people. That's the highest population in New York City's history. So yeah, some people left for the pandemic, some came back, some didn't, some have left since, but a lot of new people have come in. The same with the high wealth folks. Some have left for sure. They're still leaving. Yeah, but we're creating more millionaires all the time too. This is the truth of New York City. We create a stunning number of new millionaires every single year. We have people from all over the country, all over the world who want to be here. So it's not, I'm not for a moment saying it's not a big deal if people leave. I'd like them to stay for sure. But I don't want it to be a static equation. This place has always been able to create new wealth for a huge number of people. Bill, we have office vacancies off the charts. An article came out today that the the pandemic has... The at-home work environment is not going away. The hybrid work environment is not going away. These offices are not getting filled. We have people leaving. We need new corporations to come here. It's not enough that that smaller ones are opening. We need the major ones to come, to stay, to pay taxes, to keep the revenue going. How do we attract them? Look, I I want to, of course, I agree with you. I want as much business presence here as we can get, but I want to caution you. You just said something that I think is a different matter. Why are offices not being filled? It's not because we haven't attracted uh, companies. In fact, tech companies were, during the pandemic, gobbling up more office space. Um, what's the problem? Yes, remote work is a problem for all of us. We have too much supply. Yeah, but, but again, why? Because remote work's a problem for all of us all over the country. It's changed everything. And for the retail sector, internet you know, purchasing has changed everything. So we've got these big seismic shifts in society, basically technology-based, that have changed a lot of things. We need to answer it, as a lot of people have talked about, converting office space to residential. There's massive demand. You know plenty about what's going on with residential values in this city continue to go up. Why? Because so many people want to be here. So in I the can, end- I can beg to differ. We have a, the, the largest amount of transactions that have not happened in our history. Things are not selling. A lot of things are on the market. The prices have not yet come down, but transactions are at an all-time low. We'll get into that in a minute, but I do want to, this is very important to me. So since 2021, the city has spent $166 million, $166 million to protect tenants from evictions. Mm-hmm. Has anybody thought about the landlords? I mean, I want to ask you, Bill. Yeah. I mean, are you a landlord? Do you, do you own any properties? Yes, two, two uh, units in one building. Okay, so you could be empathetic to this. Of course. You could be empathetic to the landlords that had to pay common charges, taxes, mortgages, while it takes them a year, two years to evict a tenant. And the tenants are not paying, can't get into court. These landlords, they, they decided not to rent their apartments. The last research I found was there's 100,000 apartments that have been warehoused that landlords will not even put on the market. Because why would they? Because they're afraid they could, someone's going to move in there and they won't move out. So, I, I'm going I'm to agree with you and disagree with you. Okay. The reason why a lot of those apartments are not on the market is be, not about eviction. It's about the changes in Albany related to capital improvements 
and rent increases. Yes, that's and part of it. That's part of it. I have a lot of landlords, particularly foreign landlords that I manage, that are like, you know what? I'll just keep it empty. I hear all this bad stuff about New York. I can't evict my tenant. I don't want to play any games. I'll use it myself. I'm not even going to rent it. Right. A and lot I'm, of landlords are afraid. I hear you. And so what I'm saying is the part of it that's about how do you do a capital improvement to an apartment and appropriately adjust the rent. Again, I think that's an area where we need more work in Albany to fix that. I think there is a solution there. I think there's a way to have justice. The previous law, in my humble opinion, was way too lenient. You did the major capital improvements. You could jack up the rent immensely. It was leading to a huge amount of displacement. But the changes in that law, I think, did not account for the reality that if you went too far the other way, landlords simply wouldn't fix the apartments. They wouldn't rent the apartments. So clearly, we need an update of that law. Uh, on the question of evictions, I agree with your point. Look, stopping evictions, we had an epidemic of evictions for a period of time. We had a huge amount of affordable housing that was lost. We had a huge amount of people who were working people who had no place to go, ended up in shelter. It was right. It was 100% right to say if someone is facing eviction and they're low income. Well, then they should just have to pay their real estate taxes. What about uh, that? Hold on. Hold on. If someone's facing eviction, they deserve legal representation so we can have an orderly system. But it's also fair to say, and I agree with your point, that there's a lot of small landlords in particular who have been put in these really tough situations. Um, I understand how hard it is to make ends meet. It, you know, the cost of everything goes up if you're a small landlord. You need that rent. So I think there is a way to ensure, for example, legal representation on both sides. I think there is a way to work on things like mediation so it doesn't string out a long court process. Everything got gummed up by it's COVID. It's not change. I don't take COVID as the, as the reason for all no, of this. No, I don't think it's, it's the reason for better. all of it. I think it made it a lot worse. But I do think, again, it's time to have a conversation of sort of a third way, as it were. What we were doing before we gave people legal representation wasn't working because there was a massive amount of evictions, including inappropriate evictions. Mm -hmm. Legal representation is helpful. I want to make sure that small landlords also get a fair outcome. And I think, again, there are things like mediation that speed up the process that don't involve, you know, the constant court dates and things being delayed and all that. So the way I look at it, without being in the middle of everything today, but just trying to, what you said earlier, think about what I learned over the years is there are different approaches that we need because I don't want to see a small landlord suffer. And if someone's but they gaming, still are. I hear you. And I'm saying if someone's gaming the system, if a tenant's gaming the system. And large landlords too. I mean, there's plenty of large landlords that are, that are sitting, they have, they can't even, the attorneys can't even take new cases. It takes a year. Right. And, but that's a question right there. You just said, you just hit the nail on the head. That is a structural question of what the hell's going on with the housing court then. Do we need more judges? Do we need more mediation? What is it? There are solutions. I don't believe this is stuff that's unsolvable. I am not going to tell you, Suzanne, respectfully, I'm not going to say, oh, the good old days when tons of people were getting evicted, wasn't that great? No, it wasn't. And I'm not going to, and if you, I think you would agree with me, not every tenant is pristine, not every landlord is pristine. So what we need is a system that actually addresses who's right, who's I wrong, think where there's a solution. I completely unfair to the landlord. I think me as being a landlord and as a real estate owner of a corporation that Empire State Properties, it is unfair that an owner has to subsidize any owner, a tenant that's not paying rent while they have to pay their real estate taxes, while they have to pay their common charges, and there's been no relief for the landlords to pay those bills. Just not fair. I hear you, but I want to, what I'm trying to say to you is the previous reality was blatantly unfair to tenants and not the tenants you're talking about who I think you're trying to say, and I respect it, some people purposely game the system, oh, so right? Better, yeah. Right. But what about the people who are not gaming the system? What about the people who are working hard, trying to pay their, their uh, rent? What about the people who confronted landlords who were trying to get them out of there so they could 
jack up the rent on someone else. We saw that too. There were prosecutions of some of those landlords. So I, I don't, sorry, I, you have a perspective. I respect your perspective. If you were coming here with a big pro-tenant message, I'd be surprised. You're representing the interest that you come from. But let's be blunt. Plenty of landlords did the right thing, but plenty of landlords did the wrong thing. Plenty of tenants, plenty of, on both sides. What we need is a system that respects the fact that there are hardworking people who are doing everything right. They should not be unfairly evicted. Excuse me, Bill. I, yes, I could agree that we don't want to harm anybody, but the issue is I, it's not my job to have somebody live in my apartment that I'm paying your bills. I don't when think did I, you should. They, should. they should move out. It should be, as soon as you don't pay, you should be moved Suzanne, out. You should not wait a year to go to court. Do you think that's most tenants? Let's move on. No, wait. I'm challenging you. I do. I think yes. I think that you most think tenants. most tenants are willing to lie. I think to, that most tenants lie. will not move out if they no, can't I didn't pay their bills. So what's the do question? Do you think most tenants are trying to game the system and not pay their landlord? I most think, tenants. I don't. I I do not think most tenants. But I think most tenants, even if they for whatever their reason is that they cannot pay, the day they cannot pay, and myself, I, I mean. Anybody that I know would move out. Here's the keys. I cannot pay you. Move out. You cannot stay in somebody's property right. if you can't pay. And I believe the vast majority of New Yorkers who are tenants are either paying their rent on time, hardworking people, or if they can't afford something, they go someplace else. I have else. a building right now. Wait, wait, we have wait. a million dollars in arrears. I'm asking you. A million you, dollars in arrears. They have no, people not I paying. I want to see if you disagree with this statement. Go ahead. The vast majority of New Yorkers are decent, hardworking people who pay their rent if they can't afford an apartment, they go to someplace else. The people who are scamming are a very small percentage. And I've often said this about landlords too. I think most landlords are doing their job too. And the number who try to take advantage of tenants or force them out are the minority. So I would like to start a discussion. I respect your opinion, but sometimes I think this is a problem in our city sometimes. Everything's portrayed as bad. I'm sorry, the vast majority of New Yorkers actually do the right thing. That's my experience. I. I not disagreeing that there's most people are good, but I'm sitting with a building that there's an arrearage of a million dollars, a million dollars a month that people are not paying. Why they should just move. It's just not fair to any landlord. End anyone, story. anyone who could pay and isn't paying, I agree with you. And they shouldn't have to wait a year to go to court. And we both agree yes. radically intensely that, and again, this is a fixable problem. Add more judges. Reform the process so it's faster. Use mediation more. Some of this angst that we all feel is because we're used to a broken system that doesn't have to be. Well, it seems to be more broken these days. Yeah, but it doesn't have to. It's not. It was never so beautiful. But it doesn't have to be. It never took a year to evict somebody. I've been in this business forty years. But okay, so if there's more activity, then more judges. Let's move on to while we're staying on real estate. I want to ask you about something else that I think is the city needs to fix. So if I bought a home 30 years ago and I paid $20,000 for that home and now it's appraised for a million dollars, why does the city just arbitrarily tax me on the new valuation? I may not be able to afford a million dollars for a home that I spent $20,000 for. In California, this has been addressed and there's only an amount that the city could raise. Why has this not been addressed? And I think that it's really hurting the elderly people and it's forcing them to leave because a lot of these people cannot afford the homes 100%. and the new taxes that now are being pushed on them right. when they purchase these homes. Why has nobody looked at that? There's a lot of people in this city, seniors in particular, who are house rich, and cash poor. And we proposed a reform, uh, and I think you know all property tax uh, decisions, the big decisions on the, the nature of the property tax reside in the legislature. We proposed a reform that would address this exactly. 
put out um, originally before the pandemic. We tried to move it during the pandemic. We all understood everything was crazy. But there actually is a way to do that. There is a way to address the California did it. How do we do it? And there's a proposal, it's public, that my administration put out that I think would achieve exactly what you're saying, that respects the fact there's a lot of seniors don't have the resources, and you can give them tax relief. Um, There's other places in this city where people have tremendous value and aren't paying anywhere near what they normally would in property taxes. So there's, there's lots of imbalance all over the place. There is a way to reform that and keep the city's revenue essentially where it is. Because the other thing is that people need to remember, and it's not easy to say, but it's the truth. If you want to make sure we have the best police force, the best firefighters, the best health department, you know, you want to see repaving of your streets, et cetera, it costs a ton of money. Well, the city's, I think 35% of the budget is on real estate taxes, and I don't think that the city has been very kind to the real estate owners that own homes and just automatically just reappraise my home that I spent $20,000 for now for a million that I cannot afford seems completely inequitable to me. I think the system is inequitable. I'm, I don't think there's any, I'm, I'm just like anyone who looks you in the eye and says, oh, our property tax system is perfect. That's ridiculous. It's totally out of date. There is a way to rebalance it. And particularly, I'm particularly sensitive to low income cash poor seniors. I think that's one of the most crying needs in this whole equation. The problem is not going to shock you is a lot of folks in Albany don't want to go near property taxes with a 10 foot pole because they feel like whatever they do, someone's gonna be pissed off. And if we could have a better conversation, I believe we could in this city and this state about, hey, this thing's inequitable. Let's figure out that balance where people could feel, you'll feel good enough about it. No one's gonna be, you know, holding a parade, but they could feel good enough about it that we could make the reform. Everything we're talking about today, the bail reform, property taxes, uh, the way housing court works, everything is about us taking a hard look at ourselves and saying, are we willing to make changes? Because they actually can be made. They can be made. The way we're doing things, we don't have to do it this way. Moving away from real estate, let's Mm -hmm. talk about the huge problem. The huge problem that the city is facing today about the migrants and the homeless. Mm -hmm. If you, again, I'm going to ask you, if you were in charge, how would you handle it today? Look, it, uh, this is one where I emphasize, I, am, I feel for the mayor because he's been given a ridiculous situation. Um, I think uh, the root cause is obviously the situation with immigration at this point. I think there's a much better way to handle the asylum applications. Um, I don't pretend to be an expert but I do believe that activity should be done before people come into the country. Uh, I think there's a way to slow those numbers coming in and give give us all some relief, which is going to take, bluntly, both Democrats and Republicans in Washington compromising. I would certainly urge Democrats to compromise. I don't think we should hold to some abstract idea. Right now, we've got something that's just not working. So let's be honest about it. Even though we believe, and I think this is true about a lot of Democrats, we believe in the historic, you know, centuries old idea of asylum. Because if you look at the history of the world, how many people fleeing oppression uh, needed a place they could turn to. I never want us to be a a country that says, no, there's no such thing as asylum anymore. But there's a much better way to do it than this. This is ridiculous. So that's the root cause. Look, in the end, the work, the, the vast majority of people coming here want to work. That's the good news. The whole country's facing a labor shortage. We can put those two ideas together somehow. Get people those work permits quicker. We do need to provide some kind of shelter in the meantime, because in the end, you don't want people on the streets. That's the worst of you all things. You think we should still accept them? 
do I want it to be this way? Of course not. Do I think it's fair that Texas is sending buses up? I think it's disgusting. I don't think I can think of any other example of one state affronting and hurting another state like that. But I think in the end, the last thing you want is a bunch of people on the street homeless. That's not going to help anyone. We had 160,000 people come here just in the last few months. How do you stop the bleeding? You stop the bleeding at the border and you stop the bleeding by speeding up work permits because the vast majority of those people are ready to work. So and you think we need they should come here and they should work and vote? I think I didn't. I'm asking, uh, did, that's a different vote? question. I don't. I think they should become citizens and then vote. But okay. the point is, do I think there's a huge number of people who are coming here and are ready to work? Yes. Do I think we need people to do work in this country? A hundred percent. We're facing, you can see what's happening. We're full employment in this country. We have massive labor shortages. Talk to people in tourism, for example. Huge labor shortages. They can't hire people in the summers, for example. Talk to people in agriculture. You know, we don't, you and I both don't like the way this all went down. But now we have a problem. What do we do about it? Let's put people to work. They want to work. We need them to work. How can we do that in an equitable manner? I think there is a way to do that. How much state, how much power does the state really have? When you say that, what do you mean? About the, you know, the, you're saying that you don't like what Texas is doing and they're yeah. coming here and they're on the streets. And I understand that um, Mayor Adams has tried to go talk to Biden several times. Yeah. I personally think that's why he was attacked and why they're investigating him is because he spoke up, my personal opinion. Um, I want to know how much power does the state really have? Look, I think what Texas did, I can't think of a precedent for that you know, trying to hurt another state that way. I think it was just a cheap political stunt, but has a massive human cost and a real, you know, financial cost in New York. I think it's right the mayor's trying to figure out if there's a legal way to stop them. I think that's smart. I imagine, I'd like to imagine if the federal government had a way to intervene, they would have done it already. If they, if they haven't, they should. The solution is political in one way. You know, there should be a hell of a lot more money coming to New York to help address this. It's not going to happen with the Republican Congress. They're never going to authorize money for New York. So, you know, so again, the city doesn't really have the state doesn't really have much. I think the state here. of New York could be doing more. Let's be clear: the state of New York could be doing more to help New York City. But that's almost always true, <laughs> you know. And the state of New York is very good at taking money from New York City and forgetting to give it back when New York City is in danger. But in the end, let's go to root cause. This is also a fixable problem. You fix the problem at the border. You fix the problem before people get to the border. You can have an asylum process that says, you know, when you're, you're outside the country, you go through your asylum process. If you're granted asylum, you come in in an orderly manner. If you don't get granted asylum, you don't come in. Let's move on to what uh, we're still staying a little bit on the migrants and the homeless and the condition of New York. There are so many mentally ill people in this town. And I think that you were part of, it was called Thrive New York yes, City. Yes, absolutely. I'm not sure if you were involved. It might have been your wife. No, I've, I've, I authorized it. everything, obviously. I know it might have had some good intentions, but yeah. we could agree that it didn't work. No, I don't agree with that. You don't agree with that? No. So you think that we have less mentally ill people on the streets? Like, what is everybody seeing? I see mentally health, ill people everywhere I walk. Yeah, so the national figure is 20% of Americans have a mental health challenge at any given point in time. We recognize that you go back to most of our problems that we talk about, homelessness, incarceration, school dropouts, suicide, all these things. They obviously all have a common link, a mental health challenge. The problem with the way it's talked about is the only thing that gets focused a lot of the time is the horrible individual tragedy. Person, someone pushes someone on the subway platform, horrible. 
But the totality of the mental health challenges, it's affecting, you know, if you take 20% of New York City, what's 20% of New York City? That's, you know, over a million and a half people. So what we tried to do was come up with something that would serve people across the board. Of course, you're going to have special efforts for people with the most severe problems. But we were trying to get at the root cause again. I, I think, Suzanne, one of the biggest problems in government is, you know, trying to address an immediate crisis, doing it partially and not going for the I, I, I believe that the intentions were good, but there was a lot of money spent. Yeah. And I still walk on the streets and I see mentally because ill people everywhere. And if you look around, that's what you, you have, you walk the other side of the street. You're, you're asking, you're raising a really good common sense point and mental health doesn't have an easy common sense solution. Because for example, a mental health problem is not fixable in the traditional sense. If you have a broken leg, you can go to a doctor, you can go to a hospital, you can, you know, at a certain point, your leg is fixed, you're walking on your leg and everything's great. It doesn't work that way with mental health. People have the condition their entire life. It's how you manage it. It's how you treat the best you can. So, so my point is, mm -hmm. we were trying to build an infrastructure. We were trying to build a foundation to address mental health long-term in this city. We got a lot more people trained to be mental health providers. We got a lot of people in New York City trained to do mental health first aid so they could help the loved ones in their life. We helped hundreds of thousands of people uh, with 888 NYC Well, with a direct helpline, with trained counselors. A lot of it did work and a lot of it was trying to build toward a future. It was never going to be. If someone said to me the day we announced it, are we no longer gonna see people with mental health problems because of this initiative? I never would have said that. I said the problem's much greater than what New York City could do. You would need a massive national investment if you wanted to have a transcendent impact on the mental health crisis. It's so deep in this country. It's beyond what one city can do. So do I think that program could have been better? A hundred percent. Do I think we learned some tough lessons along the way of things we could have done better differently? One hundred percent. But no, it, you, when we were trying to build for the long term to address the mental health needs in New York City, no city or state had ever tried to do that. They never even tried. There's no national mental health strategy. If I said to you right now, Democrat or Republican administration, tell me their national mental health strategy, you'll never find it. New York City tried, and that was the value of it. You know, you... People know me as I'm, I'm very direct. Yes. Born in Brooklyn. There's yes, no, you no, are. No bullshit. And you may not like me for this, but I think that I'm giving you the platform because when people hear your name, and there's some good things, but one of the things that sticks and people get, they, they are offended, is this mental health thing. They're like, he spent all this money, his wife had this, where'd the money go? So I'm giving you this platform. Sure. Tell my audience, where did the money go for the mental health? Really, yeah. where? Because that is a really big issue. Suzanne, respectfully. Um, you talk to certain kind of people. I, I don't know who you talk to, but I can tell you one thing. I've talked to New Yorkers across the spectrum. Just give us some examples. I'm going examples. to, but I want to have to say something to you. Because okay. I don't like this. I, I'm going to be blunt back with you. Good, I want you to be. I don't like when people who, for example, if they talk to people who share political views, if they talk to people from the same neighborhoods or the same parts of the suburbs or whatever it is, and they think everyone thinks that way, that's not true. I got to represent almost 9 million people in the most diverse place on earth. There are a huge number of people who said thank you for those initiatives because they felt them, because it reached them. There's a huge number of people who never had any possibility of getting mental health support who got them through those Thrive programs. So I understand that there are some critics out there who said, oh, this is so horrible. Uh, and they acted like the money was just burned up somewhere. That's ridiculous. Everything we do in government has so many layers of accountability. Every dime was spent on mental health, period. Anyone who thinks otherwise is bluntly ignorant. Let's just stop kidding around. 
What do you think? You take bags of money and put them in a truck somewhere? If you want to be a conspiracy theorist, you can do that. You can go painstakingly and see the money that was spent to train mental health professionals, the money that was spent to get people to go into the mental health field who wouldn't, or mental health first aid, or the 24-hour helpline. All these things were about helping people with mental health conditions, sending crisis teams out to homes when someone was in crisis where there was a threat of violence. Everything was to support mental health needs. It doesn't have clean, easy, immediate results. Now, every one of these people makes an allegation. And you think you got a city controller, you got a state controller, you got a state legislature, you got the city council, you got the governor, you got the U.S. attorney, you got the attorney general. Do you think if someone put money in their pocket, it wouldn't have been found by now? No, I'm not, I'm not suggesting right. that. So I'm just wanted, think, I just well, want to know wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm answering your point. Okay. Do you think if the money was somehow burned up and not spent on money, mental health or sent to some other program, they wouldn't have found it by? Give me a break. Office management budget alone, New York City, is incredibly stringent about how they control the flow of money. We put a lot of money into mental health. It's an incredibly challenging field. It doesn't yield easy, fast results. If I wanted a popularity contest, I would say, let's stay away from mental health. It's a no win. So which program was successful in hold that? Hold on, I'm gonna, just what I told you, I'll tell you again. But the other thing is to somehow suggest my wife was involved. This is a thing that's a hang up and we should be honest about it in this country. Yes, when Hillary Clinton got involved in healthcare and she did actually very important work in the Clinton administration, the media freaked out. A lot of people, especially those who didn't agree with President Clinton, freaked out. My wife helped coordinate an effort with the health commissioner, with the health and hospitals corporation, with the office of management and budget. A whole set of people who are experts in their field came up with these initiatives and applied. She didn't say, oh, I think I'll just spend a bunch of money. And the folks who allege that, again, ignorance, political bias, total bullshit. If you want to have a serious conversation about mental health, let's have it. So I'd say, here's the problem with mental health. We don't have enough people in the field. Uh, the, there are, in Manhattan, uh, 10 times more uh, psychiatrists per capita than in the Bronx. Easy example. You don't have enough people in the mental health field. You don't have the ability of families when they see something going wrong, for example, with a child, they don't know where to turn, they can't get help, it's not available, they can't afford it. We were trying to get at that root cause problem. Because a lot of the things that you and I read about that we hate, these tragedies like the subway platform, that was a kid who at five or 10 or 12 years old, something started to go wrong. And if there was some place to turn, that could have been caught, that could have been addressed. That's why we had a 24-hour helpline that anyone could call about a loved one or a problem. That actually worked. Hundreds of thousands of people used it. That's why we trained a huge number of new mental health professionals, including peer counselors, people who had gone through problems, had made progress, and could help others. That's why we did mental health first aid, so families could learn what to do in a crisis and where to turn for help. We were trying to build a foundation. And we need to keep building that foundation. So is any of this working today? I believe it's all that I just said continues still, it's, to work. It's still in It effect. was the inspiration for the national, in many ways, what we did with our helpline, 888-NYC-WELL, helped create the 988 idea and prove it could work nationally, which is now the Congress approved that, that there should be a single place you call. It's not just a suicide hotline, but a place you call for any type of mental health crisis. So people know, because the vast majority of Americans don't know what to do. If God forbid your child, your brother, your sister, someone's in crisis, we're not trained to know how to deal with that.
Well, I think that a lot of the people on the streets have mental uh, mental illness, and it's just affecting. I mean, I, I'm afraid to walk down the streets sometimes because people are talking to themselves, and they're not off the streets, and it's just it's giving the city a really bad rap. I mean, we're, we might have been trying all these things, but the city, we have homeless, we have migrants, we've got people in, that are not in mental health, they're not in institutions, they're right. on the streets. So it's let's talk about it. No, but this is really important. The, the, the court system interpreting the United States Constitution has consistently said, you know, they, they look back on the bad old days. You remember Geraldo Rivera. Oh, I respect what he, he's a good journalist. I respect what he did. He uncovered massive abuses in what were then called, you know, mental institutions, asylums, whatever you call it. And it, that was one of the reasons why you saw those kind of facilities de-emphasized. And that was right. Families found out later on that their, you know, their children, their loved ones were being tortured, basically, or getting no care, and there was no way to have any transparency. Those were the bad old days. But what was supposed to happen was a new type of community-based facility, halfway houses, all this stuff. That's what the government promised in the 70s and the 80s. It never happened. That was the beginning of modern homelessness. So this is a classic example, like some of the other things we're talking about. Government had a chance to get it right, didn't do it. Now we've got this problem, you're right, you see someone on the street talking to themselves, it makes everyone uncomfortable, it makes everyone fearful. So you think, like I think a lot of people would think, can't you just go up with a police officer or a doctor, just take that person in, take them off the street, we never see them again. Well, the courts have said, no, you can't because of the United States Constitution. They've said, if you do that, you start to create a reality where there's an arbitrariness to who has the freedom to be on our streets or not. Panhandling, another example, I hate panhandling, but is it a constitutional right to panhandle? Yeah, it is. The courts have said it absolutely consistently because they associate it with First Amendment. They say someone has a right to go and ask for money on the street. If we said, no, you don't, okay, who's going to be the arbiter then? That guy's asking for money on the street. He goes to jail. So think about it. This is how it happened. Now, could you say, are we stuck? No, we're not stuck. Where I think we have a possibility for real change is two things. One, using, this is what we started to do before the pandemic kind of started to work. You send teams of doctors and nurses out to anyone who might be a threat to themselves or to the public. They can legally, the courts say this is absolutely fair. If someone's acting in such a fashion, they can be brought in for medical evaluation. If the evaluation shows that they are not able uh, to maintain themselves, they might be a threat to themselves or others, they can be held in. That needs to be done more often. But right now we're not devoting the personnel. I'm talking nationally. We're not devoting the personnel to actually do that. If we do that, we're going to get a lot of the people, the greatest problems in off the streets and hopefully help them. The second thing is invest in mental health at the foundation. A lot of these things, so the classic, here's a, here's a terrifying statistic. The average mental health problem in America goes undiagnosed for a decade. What if we created a culture of reporting and acting on mental health problems when they're first recognized and we provide the support, then a lot of these situations never ever happen. So the, the solutions are there. They're very big, challenging solutions. There's not that you want, and I don't blame you, you want a clear right I now. I want tough love. Yeah. I, I think it's very nice that we want to be really nice to the police and nice to the people on the streets and nice to the homeless and take them in and we have to give them jobs. But you know, my parents came here from Russia and Poland, they spoke no English. They came to this country. They, they worked as maids and housekeepers and factory workers. So yeah. I really believe that it's about hard work and tough love. Speaking of- And which, that's happening, by the way, what you just described, and God bless your family, what a beautiful history. It's happening every single day in this city. 
with generation after generation of people came here doing the same thing. How many of the cab drivers, you get in a conversation with a cab driver, they know a whole lot about the They're very the unhappy. The cab drivers are unhappy yeah, because the wait, migrants wait. are taking their jobs. Hold on, I'm making a point about New York City. How many of the cab drivers are exactly like you said about your dad, who are super educated from where they come from, they're, they're driving a cab, they're working for the moving company, whatever here. That New York City dream continues for a huge number of people. Gotta have tough love. I think you can have tough love, but I think you have to have legal tough love and you have to not kid around about what it's going to take to solve the problem. A lot of people say, oh, just round them up. That's what people are thinking. Let's be honest no, about more it. police, tougher, 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 tougher right. is my opinion. And I'm saying to you, here's your challenge. If you, again, do you want, Suzanne, you're a very smart person, but do you want a solution or you just want to feel good about being outraged? If you want a solution, you got to do something legal, Sometimes you can change the law. That's true. You can't change the Constitution. Whatever law we do related to dealing with homelessness has to abide by what the judges say. It's you know, under I the United States Constitution. I want to give you an example. I don't know if they're going to cut this, but I think they're my, audience, us, my, they're my, my audience to cut us. is going to love no, wait, this. Suzanne, they're trying to censor us. They're trying to That's censor us. Wait, wait can, I, can I tweet that out? <laughs> don't censor Suzanne Miller. Don't censor me. But this is a funny story, and I, I, have to, I have to go on record for this. So we talked about the evictions. We talked about tough love. So I had a tenant in one of our properties that we managed. The, the owner was actually from Russia, and he was a good guy, and he he needed this money to pay his bills. Right. And the tenant in there was not paying the rent. Was not paying the rent eight months, nine months, would just come down to our office and say, I'm not leaving, I'm no place to go, evict me. I made some common sense decisions and I said, you know what? The courts are not there for the landlords. Guess what? The, kid, the courts are not gonna be there for the tenants either. I literally took my chances, I locked the doors, I said, get out right now, had my super come pack up their shit, you could get arrested for that. I know that. But I had to make a decision of tough love to protect this landlord. And I made a common sense decision to get the guy out. And that's what I mean about laws. Yes, sometimes you have to break the laws. Sometimes you have to say, what is common sense and what, what is business? Okay, I'm going to tell them they can't censor. They can't censor Suzanne Miller. You can't. But the, so but, that's my, that's a true quote, story. But the quote, sometimes you have to break the laws, you have to break, yes, is yes. going to be a little controversial. Okay, let it be break. Speaking of breaking the Suzanne laws. Suzanne Miller supports people breaking laws. Uh, details I, at 11. Details at 11. Lawless. I'm, I'm going full force. Anarchy. Here. You got that, John? Margo? Let's talk about something that really sings to me on a personal note. As I said earlier, my parents were Holocaust survivors. Yes. And I want to understand what you think about these anti-Semitic, yeah. anti-American protests in the colleges, in the streets, stopping yesterday, they stopped the Holland Tunnel. Yeah. How would you handle this? Look, uh, uh, first of all, God bless your parents. And you told me a little of their story. It's unbelievable. What amazing human beings. And I have met many, many Holocaust survivors and I've met people with tattoos on their arms from the camps. It's uh, sobering and it reminds us that anti-Semitism never went anywhere. So here's the bottom line. There, there was a horrifying, disgusting, inhumane massacre on October 7. I am a progressive. I am a Democrat. Everyone who wants to talk about this subject should start with that statement, that what was done uh, was absolutely unacceptable. It was not only an act of terrorism. It was inhumane in every sense. You can't um, look at that situation. You can't justify what Hamas did on any grounds, any philosophical grounds, just pure inhumanity. So let's start with that. Uh, second of all, I believe in the state of Israel. I believe it has to exist. I believe that what we're seeing right now, we're getting further confirmation. The kind of anti-Semitism that has never gone away for 2,000 years, bluntly. Um, I agree, and, and we can have our partisan disagreements, but Joe Biden said very powerfully that Israel has to exist. If Israel didn't exist, we would need to create an Israel for Jewish people to be safe in this world. 
I believe that 100%. And I have this argument with uh, all the time with people who say, well, how is that progressive? I'll tell you how it's progressive. Progressives believe in fighting for people who've been oppressed. The Jewish people have been oppressed for millennia. Now, do I think Palestinian people are having a really tough time too? I do. I want to see Palestinians stop suffering. By the way, Palestinian leaders have done a huge disservice to their own people. I would argue Benjamin Netanyahu's done a huge disservice to the Israeli people. You need a two-state solution. It's been talked about since 1948. Everything else has been tried and failed. That was the place that was right in the beginning. I wish they had done it in the beginning. You should still do it now. But you gotta start with the fact that Israel has to exist, period. There's I'm, no choice. I'm specifically asking you, Bill, about New York. So when my parents described what was happening in Poland in 1938, yeah. burning the pogroms and burning the synagogues and protests on the streets started small, then we see what happened. Mm -hmm. And I, this keeps me up at night. I mean, as a, as a Jewish person in New York, it's very concerning. I don't feel safe. If you were the mayor and you had these protests and you had them stopping the Holland Tunnel and they were stopping people from entering, they stopped them from the tree a few weeks ago. They were trying to, I mean, all of this stuff, this, this hate, how would you handle it? Again, I, I never, I'm a, I had Would the you put these respect, people in jail? Would you say respect. free speech? Free, or is this hate speech? What would you do? Suzanne, greatest respect for you. You keep trying to do the, if you were the mayor scenario, I keep telling you that's why I don't how about, do it. How about as a human being? As a human being, I'm gonna tell you what I believe. Uh, we're Americans, of course there's a right to free speech. That's different from can you disrupt everything in society? No, you can't. You can try. You're, you're, you wanna go try and walk on that highway? You can try and do that. You get your warning, you get arrested, you pay the consequences. That is the way to do things. That's what's worked, by the way. For, arrested, there's no, how no, are you gonna get wait, arrested? Wait. You're not going to jail. Listen to what I'm saying. For decades in this city, and I give the NYPD a ton of credit for this, we've been a focal point for protest internationally. And the rules of engagement were always, if you try something like that, you're gonna be told stop, and if you don't do it, you're getting arrested, and the consequences ensue. If you keep doing it, there's higher consequences. But I think what you're talking about is not about, to my view, is not about how do you go about a protest, because we've had that for right-wing, left-wing forever. The question is, how do you condemn anti-Semitism properly? And my view is, and this is, this, I, you know, I was involved up at Harvard, and I condemned what I saw, some of the things there, same at NYU. I said, look, uh, you cannot say from the river to the sea. From the river to the sea is an is a act of aggression and is an act of anti-Semitism. You cannot say it's okay to have genocide of the Jewish people. That to me is by any rule of any university could, should be considered harassment, should be considered an actionable offense. That's the kind of thing that should get someone expelled. So I think there's a lot of ways that leaders can say, we're gonna restore a standard. And by the way, if you said the same, let's, let's flip it. If I said, oh, you're Islamic, you should be genocide for your people. Same thing, you're out of here, right? Let's, if, if black people, Latino people, you wanna do anything. Let's create a single standard and apply it consistently. And I don't know why some of these universities couldn't just say that. We, of course I want their academic freedom, of course I want free speech, but if you threaten someone violently, physically, or if you use language that encourages a physical threat towards them. Or if them, you stop mass transit or you stop that, No, I'm differentiating it on purpose. I'm saying, you, for God's sake, Suzanne, people have been stopping mass transit. Again, folks who- With hate speech like this? Oh, whoa, 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 let's separate. Folks who hated Fidel Castro would go and do protests and block roads, and people who are left-wing would do protests and block roads. 
that is part of America. If you want to do a civil disobedience, the civil rights movement did it for God's sakes. If you want to do a civil disobedience, that's your right. You get a warning. If you don't change. You get arrested and we're done. Different from using language that encourages violence towards people. If you use language that encourages violence, there should be maximum legal consequences, but also within these institutions, like the universities, it should not even be gray. If you encourage violence towards a fellow student, if you use language that's about genocide, I don't know what could be more violent than genocide. So we can agree on something, We Bill. do agree, we Suzanne, agree. look at that. <laughs> we oh agree my on God. that we're gonna lock up the- uh, But they're trying to the, censor you, because they, they don't want this to get out, that you and I agree. All right, well, so okay. 421A. Yeah. I think that you were a proponent and yes. somehow it is gone. Tell us what happened. Look, I, I'm not going to tell you what happened because I wasn't there for what happened recently. I'm going to tell you why it makes no sense to me because we came out off, into office. We thought 421A needed to be reformed. We thought it needed to be more about creating more affordable housing. We worked with the legislature. We got it done. And then because we had a better 421A, we had programs like mandatory inclusionary housing that we created. We had a lot of rezonings. We built a lot of housing. We built a lot of affordable housing. We built a lot of market housing. So look, I am a progressive and a Democrat, but I also believe you can do development the right way. And this is where I part company with some people. I believe you can have height, you can have density, you can have a lot of development, but make sure the community gets their fair share. Make sure there's a lot of affordable housing in the bargain. Make sure there's jobs for community residents in the bargain. There's a way to do this the right way. I'm appalled that 421A was allowed to lapse. And my argument would be, go back and figure out what kind of rebalance you need, but you can't go without it if you expect to have more affordable housing in the city. So did you go to Albany to fight for this? This last time, no. I have not been in public life in the last year or two, as you know. But what I do know is when we went to Albany in 2014, 2015 to work on this issue, we were able to get to a resolution. And I think it can be done again. Well, I congratulate you for that because that's such, I have been a developer. He's actually a Chinese developer and he owns this property on Fifth Avenue. He's like, Suzanne, I'm not going to build it. Why do I want to build it? I'm going to hold it. I can get no tax incentives. I'm, I'm capped on what I could charge for rent. I might have to deal with an eviction situation. So with the laws today, I'll just keep my land. Well, and, and that's why we don't have housing. You and I agree again, Suzanne, yes. that we need to renew 421A. But, but look, but I think folks in Albany are going to say they want changes. That's cool. Make some changes. That's part of like life changes. Laws should change with the conditions of the society. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Do we agree, Suzanne? We agree, Bill. Look at that, Suzanne. It happened again. It happened again. Oh, my God. Let's just, let's wrap it up because I'm, I'm getting a, a lot high, of flack a, here from, no, the, uh, from WABC. There, there was a moment of agreement. Like, they, like it down. It. they like so it. So last question, Bill. So yes. what are your future ambitions? Are you running again for governor? Like what's going on? No politics. Um, right now I'm teaching uh, at NYU. I'll be teaching out at the University of Michigan this semester. Um, been giving speeches around the world on topics I care about. I care a lot about artificial intelligence because I think there's some real threats to what it could do to our democracy that need to be addressed that we're not talking about, and, and that's something I'm going to be working on. So I am a private citizen. I hope to contribute in other ways. Uh, and there are a lot of ways to contribute. You going to write a book? I, I don't know if it's that time yet. Maybe one day. So if you were, what would the title be? I have to work on that, Suzanne. Will you gonna, let us know? Uh, can, we, you, can we do it first at WABC? <laughs> you know, that's, that sounds like a good idea. Okay. If Thank they you. don't censor you. <laughs> no, they won't. John, don't censor me. Chad, don't censor me. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the Miller Report. This is so fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you, Suzanne. Thank you for tuning into the Miller Report. Please download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.